This is a Stand Up Labs production, powered by digital media. I'm driving along with two Jewish people on my fender. There's a law in New York State. I sang once for Barbara Streisand, it's a true story, and her eyes crossed the other way. It was well, the first thing I do is make them toast my salad. From the writer of Nyeh and the director of Nyeh comes Nyeh. You can have an eight-way suck fest up in your room, but you can't walk barefoot to the casino. I want a lemon twitter, I want a raspberry puff, I want a honey curl, and a, 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 no, two chocolate, no, one, one, put it back, put it back. I can loosen up. Don't have to be so black all the time. I hate when my foot falls asleep during the day because that means it's going to be up all night. My neck is actually six inches long, completely flaccid. It don't matter about how much you sniff, put it away, sniff the interest. We're going to have to buy more stuff. As a comedian, you get to see and work with a whole bunch of comedians that just blow you away. And when I first worked with uh, my next guest, she blew me away. She was not only a great comedian and a personality plus on stage, but I'd never seen anyone other than, I guess, Paula Poundstone and Jimmy Brogan work a crowd as incredibly as adept as she does. She can do a show all on crowd work. Um, I, I love her so much because she's just very funny and very warm, and uh, I know you're going to love her too. So uh, sit back, relax, and uh, listen to Caroline Ray. You know, and uh, all the times that I've done comedy or done something on the uh, production end of comedy, I've always been with the person that's across from me um, because we both find each other very funny. Hilarious. And, and uh, hilarious, <laughs> but funny is the bottom line. I'll never forget the first time I ever uh, fell in love with you as a comedian was we were working together at Caroline's and the comedy club in uh, Times Square. And that you, everyone thinks I own. <laughs> yeah, which is great. And, and a lot of articles that mention your name, they always say not related <laughs> to like that. Every every Caroline in the world is going to be that. Um, you ad libbed most of the set, and I know you ad libbed the set because I, you know, worked with you so many times. And uh, I said, you know, before I had worked with you that night, there was only one other comedian that made me laugh so hard and be in reverence of ad-libbing brilliance was Paula Poundstone when I was a young comedian. And then it was you, Caroline Ray. And, uh, and I said, this is one of the greatest comics I've ever seen in my life. And it just only got better and better. So to have you on my first podcast is really sweet. You're so sweet. And I remember the first time I saw you and I was like, this man is a master wordsmith. Right. And you had so much clever, hilarious material. And we have become in the, yeah, whenever I think of, whenever I have to recommend a comedian, I always think of you. Yeah, it's mutual. And we got to, we've had so much fun in our lives. I know, we've got to do many, many crazy things. It is. But here's the thing that I don't know is you, you know, when you were in Canada. Yes. As a young Canadian, um, where you, I don't know where you started stand-up. I know you started really, the big club you started was Catch a Rising Star. Mm-hmm. And that was at the turn of the decade, at the beginning <laughs> of the 90s, when was, comedy was, was really starting to take off. And you just happened to hit there, but before then. You know what? That was, that was, that was the beginning. I never, ever did stand-up in Canada. I was too chicken. And my friends were running the Just for Laughs Festival. And, I would, and the first time I ever went, this is so hilarious, I was sitting, I was a seat filler, and I was like in awe because I saw Brett Butler. Oh. And I thought, oh my gosh. And she did that, um, her bit about when, um, how, you know, she was, uh, her her husband was Jewish, 
Right. Remember? I don't even know if I can still do Brett. And he was like, well, well it takes me a minute <laughs> to get good. there. Because, you know, we had the same managers. So I used to always call up and go. All right, the Australian Yeah, guy. the Australians, the Martins. And I would call up and go, hey, it's Brett. How are you? Yeah, it's really good to see you. Listen to them. <laughs> I don't think you should represent Caroline, right? I don't think she's that funny at all. And they go, nah, Brit, we won't then. We won't. And I'd be like, how many times are you going to fall for this, you guys? It's me. And she didn't say it. Okay. But um, it was Brett's joke about when she, oh my gosh, she married a Jewish guy. And um, the, the you know what I'm talking about. She said she her husband was Jewish. and I kind of remember. And, and then she said, from... the mother-in-law said, why didn't you just kill me in my sleep? Remember? <laughs> anyway. Yeah, I, I kind of do. So you, you know what? You, My bread has really morphed into Clinton. It really has. <laughs> it's sort of. It was. It used to be much better. Brett Clinton. Brett Clinton. It was very. Hi, good. Carolyn. It is so nice. This is what he said when I met the president. When I performed for the president, just stand up. He said, um, "Carolyn, I think you have the hardest job in the world." And I said, "No, Mr. President, I think your job is slightly harder." But we're both afraid of bombing. And then I was like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever said in my whole life. Yeah, but he probably still thinks about it. Yeah. No, I don't I don't think so. And I think so. He said, he does the old, how are you, Mr. President? And he says, better now. <laughs> and you think you're like the only woman in the world. And then right. you're standing next and to him three months later. To. And he says to Cheryl Crow, Cheryl Crow says, how are you, Mr. President? And he says, better now. Yeah. It's from that book of Clinton-esques. <laughs> So you were a seat filler at, because you liked comedy. Yeah. No, I always knew. I absolutely knew from the time I was seven years old that I wanted to be a stand-up comedian. I wanted to be Carol Burnett and Johnny Carson morphed into one creature. And I was too scared. It's like you can't be a prophet in your own town. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to do it. I did one thing. I was working as an assistant to the artistic director of a theater. And I roasted him in front of like many people. That was sort of like the first time it was stand-up. But then, no, I moved here in 1989 and I took Scott Blakeman's class. And how was that a class? I had a huge crush on him. He was oblivious to me in every way. And now, who's sorry now, as Patty right. <laughs> Klein wrote the song about Scott who's Knight. Who's sorry and now? <laughs> and then, no, and then I guess I just I just started here. Right. Uh, so when you did Scott's class, did you go up at a comic strip and do a set? or? Did yeah, you at get... the end of Scott's class, I did. And I had all my really, like, at the then very poor Australian friends who right. said to me as I walked on stage, you're really bad. And I was like, I haven't spoken yet. Yes. I, haven't spoken. I, still, <laughs> I still have that tape. It's quite hilarious. That's yeah. a, that's great. And then how did you get to Catch a Rising Star? How did By you the way, go I said tape, not CD or DVD or whatever right. it is. So you, had a, a you submitted and someone actually watched it. What, for Catch a Rising Star? Yeah. Gosh, no, I guess I just, I just, you That's know. That's the part I don't know about. I guess I just did the, like the age. I remember, I remember having a job. I had a morning job, an afternoon job, and an evening job. And at 3.20 in the morning, I had my audition at the improv. Because, you know, mm. when, because I got the number, like the lottery right. to go in. And then I, I, I had to, so, you know, a full day had gone by. And then 3.20 a.m. I had to go. Remember the improv dance? I do. Forty fourth. Yeah, I I had a. There crazy... was when prostitutes were a plenty. I remember the first. There's still I prostitutes ever a plenty. By. They're just not outside. No, they're not outside. And they she was live wearing in places now. A vinyl, completely clear dress. Ah. Completely clear. And I was, of course, you know, little girl from Canada, like. And you said, <laughs> "There's my outfit for the stage. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to be perfectly clear." <laughs> oh, see, look at your pun. Yes. perfectly clear okay. and uh yeah you know my first time i i was running a comedy club in the city at, that's right the paper moon i know but that was that was pre before you yeah because i gave it up in 1988 because yeah, everyone in, in the world called me and said i want i didn't have an office they called me at home three in the morning i want to work your club and you only have 52 weeks and you can only have 52 headliners and oh people would headline it was that kind of a club it was yeah where it was started it, it was, was second avenue was it was it? in the village where Boston Comedy Club was. It, it was? was underneath it. I started the Paper Moon. 
Wow. In 84. I had gone to Emerson. I didn't think you could get any lower than the Boston Comedy Club. Yeah. <laughs> well, literally, it was below <laughs> that. Actually, it was. we rebuilt the club for comedy. I was a comedian. I knew I had all these friends, you know, Mario Cantone and Susie Essman. And I just said, will you guys please come and help me start this thing? And we did it. And I met Colin Quinn right away. And then we had this club. And every week we would bring in comics. And I paid everyone out of my pocket from my day job. But I paid very well. So people kept coming back. Uh, free tickets for the audience. And then eventually uh, we made money. And then we gave the comedians a lot of money. What was your day job? Um, I worked for my father selling... Uh, you know, electronics, and I hated it. It was, yeah. I, 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 I got, for- a, I did comedy in the seventies and quit because I said that was, you know, nothing really. I was going to make money at, so I went to go make money, and I hated money. So then I went, became a comedian. You can say about Colin Quinn. <laughs> I was, I, I think Colin Quinn is to comedy what Lin Manuel Miranda is to musical theater. Ah. He's just this like unique genius. What he's capable of doing, and, I know, and, and, and ridiculously and- funny. And has never changed from that. It's never no, changed never. from that. He's been consistently all the way. Well, he helped me run this club. One weekend he would host, the other weekend I would host the show. And it was a fantastic club, and we paid comedians really well, and we had all these different headliners. So I didn't get to you know see you. And then in 1987, I went out to L.A. Kinison saw me, brought me into his little fold, and then I didn't meet you. I didn't come back to New York till 1990. Right. So then I saw you killing a, a Catch a Rising Star, and I went, well, I don't know anything about as much as I know you so well. I don't know anything beforehand. I, I literally went... Um, Lewis was good to me because I, I those first two years, I must have gone on stage 500 times a year. Mm-hmm. There was never... like I, I remember leaving Christmas dinner, and my family was like, where, where are you going? And I'm like, I'm hosting. <laughs> I'm hosting. I cannot... you know." Now I'd be like, no, I'm not working on Christmas. <laughs> but I'm you worked three jobs Sunday. during the day, and then you went to the clubs yeah. at night. Yep. What jobs did you have during the day? Um, I was a temp. I was absolutely terrible, but I got, you know, Great literally, they, they would literally be like, um, be like, hi, I'm the temp. And they're like, okay, um, you have to assemble the mail room. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> Whatever. I was, I was, did that. And then I was a cater waiter and I worked in an office. I did, I did a million jobs. And in fact, I got hired to be a copywriter at a big ad agency. Same here. To work for <laughs> Reebok. And I was hired and took the job and was supposed to show up Monday. And I never went, nor did I call, because (laughs) I thought I will then end up being a copywriter. And it will not be like my ATM. It will be my career because I'll get sucked in. And I was like, at the time, you know, it was like that insane focus. Yeah, I got a job for some guy I went to college with. His father had an agency. So I got a job as a copywriter at the agency. And uh, the good thing was, is I was a young kid. And the bad thing was, I was a young kid. And the guy took advantage of me. And I wrote jingles and commercials and Aww. and made a fortune for the company, but I got paid really poorly. Then my father waved some bigger money at me to work for him. But the advertising agency, it's, you know, you're just whoring. You're just lying for a living. And you make, I was making shitty money. Now right. I'm a comedian and doing what I love for a living, telling the truth. And we're making a, a lot of money. And it's a, right. it's a nice difference. You remember your first laugh? Was it like your mom or friends of yours? Um, what do you mean? My first laugh ever in my whole yeah, life? Yeah, for the one that you said, oh my God, I, I'm seven. I, I was four do comedy. years old and um, my mother came downstairs. We had three cats and I had we all wore little black velvet bows. We were like little, you know, waspy Canadian <laughs> girls and, or, and, and navy and, and dark green ones. And there was a bow on the floor. And my mother said, it's funny oh, how you remember the, the clothing and the colors and the bows. I do. And my mother said, oh no, the cat, you know, 
went to the bathroom and I said, no, mommy, poo doesn't come gift wrapped. And that was like, <laughs> I am on to something. <laughs> yeah. This is fantastic. <laughs> you get a laugh and then you chase it for the rest of your for life. For the rest of your life. I but, was explaining to someone like, I, I was just in Naples at this club I loved. And it was just like, it was a pure, it was just pleasure to like be on stage and talk to the 1% of the 1% and sort of <laughs> gently make fun of them. And someone said to me, well, why are you still doing this? You've already done this and that and that. I'm like, uh, why does Jerry Seinfeld do it? Why did the most successful comedians, why does everybody, I mean, and you could, because you, I don't believe you can help yourself. And it's also like, I feel like I went to a spa for the weekend because I did, you know, five shows. That's great. And why does Don Rickles still do it? Or why did George course. Burns do it till he's on? Let me tell you, I got to open for Don Rickles. That uh, was like one of the most exciting moments of my, I opened for Bill Cosby in front of like 40,000 people. Uh, that, where was that? That was, that was in the good old days when I think it was, I'm trying to remember, it was Ford hired us. Wow. Ford yeah. hired me. I got to open for Aretha Franklin. See? It's yeah. amazing. Ford was very good to comedy. I remember the first gig I ever got when they when they wanted me to open for somebody. And they said, we, they want you to open for Michael Bolton. Uh. And I was like, I was having, and they said, but you cannot do any comedy about anything to do with his hair. And then, of course, <laughs> I was like obsessed with like jokes constantly. And I, and I remember I would go, I, I thought, I, w- I would have a nightmare. I was going to go on stage and go, ladies and gentlemen, here's a riddle. Who's bald and also has split ends? Please welcome. <laughs> I was like, I can't do it. No. I can't do it. And he's actually the loveliest person. He's the greatest guy. Nicest I, person. I had a gig with that where I went as a cancer benefit, and his friend had died, and he was going to be there. And I made fun of him on stage all the time. I had a very funny bit that I don't remember. And I like of course, you remember we don't the remember. And I, People repeat jokes to me, and I go, "That is so funny." They're like, yeah. "It's yours." I'm like, "You're kidding." Before I tell you that, Eddie Izzard was. I saw him recently. I said, "Oh, one of my favorite bits of yours." And I told me, "Goes, oh, thank you." I said, "I made that up on." on the spot and I completely forgot about it. That's so funny. But anyway, the Michael Bolton thing, I was so nervous when I was doing this gig that he was going to come after me because I had done this bit and it was pretty scathing. And I really have not done any scathing bits in my life, but this was one that was just really working. And he starts running toward me and I'm like, oh no, here we go. So I'm clenching my fist and he's like, you're one of the funniest comedians I've ever seen. I want you to work with me. You're clenching your fist. Eddie, you would never have gotten in a fight in your life. You're pretending I, that I've been you in were one gonna... fight. I was getting ready oh, in case get... he was going to come at me. I didn't want to fight with him. No, it, but I, you why were was he sing running? ballads at each other. That's <laughs> yeah. what that kind of fight you have with Michael Bolton. No, that was Creed. Sorry. <laughs> um, so, uh, but I have a good Eddie Izzard story for you. And uh, so, but he turned out to be the nicest guy and he gave me his card and I started working with him. And I said, you know, after one of these benefits I do with him, I said, you know, I used to make fun of you in Mac. He goes, I know. He's, he's, he's just, he has a great sense of humor. He does. He's a sweetheart. Eddie Izzard story. Okay. So when I moved to New York, um, my, I was living with my best friend in Montreal. Mm-hmm. And, um, and when I moved out of my apartment, Bruce Hills moved right. into my apartment, who is, you know, head of Just for Laughs. But he was like, you know, an assistant. He was he time. was just just for laughs. He was just <laughs> <laughs> And Elizabeth and I well, like Elizabeth ended up going out with some guy and and you know, we would end up with like um going to parties with you know, we went to see the Bangles and oh, right. whoever. And then she moved to England. <laughs> whatever. The Bangles and somebody, by the way, in Florida this weekend, someone said, Oh my god, are you Belinda Carlisle? And I was ah. like, Thank you. <laughs> I was so in love with her, but this, that um, was that was this. Bangles were pre uh, Belinda Carlisle. They were Belinda Carlisle was Go Go's. The Go Go's, the Bangles, Sus- Suzanne Hoff is that Hoff, her name? Yeah, yeah. Suzanne and then Hoffs. yeah, so Hoffs. And then and we would go to these concerts. I have no idea why right. we were having like we were in that strange. It seems so long ago. It's so weird how long ago it was. Anyway, Elizabeth moved to London then, 
And she was going out with this guy for a while on a few dates, and she really liked him. And then she noticed, she said, there's just something weird. The last time I noticed that he was wearing, he had um, a pedicure and with, like, colored nail polish. And she thought that was a little bit weird. Mm-hmm. And then the next time, he was wearing pantyhose and high heels. But he was completely straight. And nails and pantyhose. Yeah. And it was Eddie Izzard. Yes. All those years ago. Yeah, 1989 was the first time I met him. He ran this club called Screaming Blue Murder in England. And I just went to go do a set there. And he had no pantyhose. He had he had pants. Uh, and uh, he was hilarious. He ran the show. And we oh, all got to go on the, the stage with him. And it, you know what? He has a, did you ever see him in Joe Egg? Yes. He's magnificent actor. He's an amazing actor. actor. Yeah. yeah. He's brilliant. I saw him on Broadway. Yeah. Um, not long ago, David Allen Greer was really great. Um, so the first, I remember speaking of England that I had recommended you for a television show in England. Oh, yeah. What Tell people about the difference of working European crowds as opposed to American crowds. Do well, you know they're, the they're so offended that you're talking to them. And to me, like, I really, everybody's got their own style, mm-hmm. right? I mean, but I... Um, some this is what I've, I've started to make this metaphor with comedy. Some people come with a prepared dish, yes, and I come with half the ingredients, and I believe the audience has the other half of the ingredients, and together we're going to make something, and it's not going to probably ever be made again. But that's the fun of live comedy, yes, and that's why even doing a set which you practice, and even when you do like a set that you you in your mind you really killed, when you watch it on television, it's it never has captured what it was, because I do believe comedy is meant to be live. Right. I don't three dimensional. Uh, it right. is. It's it's. Yeah, it's just, it never translates as much. In, you know, you know, on television, it's better to have a short set, you know, four to five minutes. Right. Because it's like a cut from your album. Whereas opposed to when you do a live experience, it's it's many dimensional. And you can never recreate that. Even with three cameras or five cameras, right. you can never recreate it. But in England, you said that the audiences didn't go for the... No, they wouldn't. I, I remember that, well, I totally... Um, I... I <laughs> They, if you talk to them, they were almost offended. Like, what are you doing? Like, they expect like a full Amway presentation at the end of which they wonder how much money they'll be making per month and how soon they'll be there have their own franchise. It's just like when I was in Scotland um, most Edinburgh recently Festival. at the Edinburgh Festival, it was one audience where they just were literally like blank faced. And at the end, um, the woman did come up to me and she was like, That was great. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> And I'm thinking, really? Yeah. Is it a big secret from your face? Because you were completely without expression. And then she said, my husband could not understand you because of your accent. And really did come up to me and say, like, well, my wife thought, okay, but I didn't even know about it anyway, but it's great. So I have a good time here and it's great. And I'm like, are you speaking English? I, not, not a chance. There was a time when Jonathan Katz and Don Gavin and I went to Newcastle, England. Oh, my England. God. Don Gavin. Yeah. Holy moly. Brilliantly brilliant. Boston, and, 1989, for sure. Don and Gavin he, was king. He was king and still is. He's still hilarious yeah. and still smart and great and good to young comics, which oh, is good. something that he's always been was good to me when I was young. So this festival came up in Newcastle first ever, and I brought him there. And we, they, I had worked in England. They weren't sure how their acts would go. So they, a co- local comedy club let us use there to try our material to see what would work and what wouldn't. So the night before, we get to go on, and there was a Scottish host, and he spoke like that. I couldn't even do the accent for you. And the audience laughed so hard, and we didn't understand a word he yeah. said, and we thought, we are so screwed. Uh, luckily, we did well. And they, But here's the difference. So you were saying before, in, in England, they don't uh, listen or they don't want to be talked to. In Ireland, it's completely different. Oh, in Ireland, they talk to you, like, literally. They're, like, harassing you on the way to the stage. Yeah. 
It's really fun. What's because that just- about, Blondie? I was like, <laughs> what? I am. Give me the chance. Give me. I'll, I'll be at the mic in a second. No, but I, Scott, I like. Once I like you get movies. to them, like when I did the Glasgow Comedy Festival, and it was I've, I've done it twice, and it was fantastic. And the the just in terms of the audiences, right? Because when they go to a comedy club, it's very different than when you're at a theater. I got put in a theater, mm-hmm. you know, and then they expect to be like have a performance. If you're in a comedy club, they're pretty great. Yes. If it's like a small one, like the stand clubs are pretty great. Yes. But when I was in um at the uh the, at the Glasgow Comedy Festival, it said 45 minutes intermission, 45 minutes. So I just thought it was two I was doing the same set twice. Right. No, 45 minutes. 20 minute intermission, another 45 minutes. It's like, hey, like, I, are you I'm kidding me? I'm not that interesting. Really, people, come that, on. That happened to me. Rich Hall, I was very lucky. Hi, how are you doing? Uh, listen, one night listen. he comes up to me, uh, he said, You're very funny, and come with me, we're going to have dinner. So that no, he said, uh, listen, can we have dinner? I think you're really funny. Yeah, and it was it was really <laughs> great. And he said, you got to do this gig in Paris, France. It's the best gig on the planet. Oh, you used to do that one all the time. Yes, and it was great. So the first day I get there and I meet the guy and he has flowers in his hair, but not like leaves. And he's wearing a you know mismatched pants and shirt, and he's just it's like he's the guy in charge turned out he's the greatest guy in the world uh-huh. but he says you can do 45 minutes then we take our intermission interval then you do another 45 and i'm like what i don't have an hour and a half for this who would they don't want to hear who who i am so i go to uh, i go to the phone i call rich i go what did you get me into he said this comedy club is the best in the world it is like a jazz club for comedians he says ad lib the first 45 and then <laughs> work the crowd and take a break and then do your act. And the next one, I went, oh, my God. And I started smoking again. I had quit smoking because I couldn't believe it. my girlfriend. Said, Let's go to the Louvre. And I go, you go to the Louvre. I have to write an act. So I'm <laughs> writing down things on paper. When I was three and stories I was going to tell. <laughs> well, he was right. It was I had lived with the crowd. And I looked at my watch and thought about I had done about 30. I'd done an hour and 10 minutes. Wow. And I took a break. But, you know, that's why I find European audiences um smarter in a sense not yeah. always but much smarter much more schooled in entertainment and they want to be part of the i love australian situation. audiences i think they're amazing and they love americans they do Even what about what was your first ever tv uh american oh, my experience? first tv ever was mtv half hour comedy hour ah. i auditioned at the boston comedy club and they said just be completely clean and i was filthy and then um I got that. And then I, I just, it makes me cry because I think of my dad because my dad lived in Arizona. And I said, Dad, I'm going to be on this show called MTV Half Hour Comedy Hour and completely forgot about the time change, right? Oh, so right. my father called me and said, uh, Honey, listen, I, I've watched a show called Yo MTV Raps. <laughs> and um, you were not on it. Not on it. And then <laughs> Billy like, Idol was on talking about a white wedding. And then. <laughs> But you were nowhere to be found. <laughs> and So that was your first one. That was and, my first one. And so this is the first time you've seen yourself on television, what that's like for you as a comic. Oh, my God. It's so bizarre. But you know what? I had this sort of disastrous thing happen that was excellent because the 10th time I was on stage, right. I competed in the Johnny Walker comedy contest. Oh, yes. I remember that. And I made it to the finals. And it was me, Ray Romano. Like, I had no business being there. And in the finals, I could not have bombed or eaten crow more it was in front of like at the time sort of you know big wiggy people mm-hmm. and it took me and it was so humbling you know and 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 from there i wasn't on television for another five months after that. five months that's pretty good <laughs> no i know I, but, but here's the weird thing remember, about competition times, you we shouldn't be com- competing no, against we, ray romano or of anybody course not. 
but you do a competition. Yeah, and I'm getting rid of it. I only did it at the beginning because I was trying to get audiences to come to this thing because people love competitions and that's what it's become. But I hate that part of it. Yeah. And, and uh, I tell, I pay everyone the same and say, don't compete. Right. So this, you know, just the, the illusion of competition. And I'm working it out so that after this year, there's no more competition. That, that might be American the, company. you know what? I have a complete goal and I'm, I'm getting very close to doing it after your, your amazing festival. I'm getting Phil Palisol his own special. Oh, yes. I am. He's brilliant. Comic. He is a brilliant unknown comic. Well, that's the cool thing about my job. As much as I love, my favorite thing is to do stand-up, but to find people that no one really knows or see someone at the beginning and see that soul inside them and know that they're going to be a great comedian right. and put them together with you know great comics who care about other comics. You know, like when you were at that festival, who was the the, the guy that really took to you? He was a New York guy and he just moved to L.A. I, I, Adam... I can't, oh God! Yeah, I can't that remember, guy. I can't remember anyone's last name. Yeah, that guy, Adam. What's what, his name? What is, what's been your like your most exciting um, comedy compliment from someone that you admired? Um, George Carlin. <gasps> he asked me to teach his girlfriend stand up, and I go, "Well, you can't teach it, but I can oh. help her improve it." And he said, uh, "He said, well, I heard you're the best, and uh, I love your stand up, and I would like." Oh, I know. Oh my. I know. I have a, a I, That's I have a landline that I've kept all this time only because I have a message on my machine from Carlin. You gotta you gotta record it and get I it. I just off recorded it. it. Oh good. And so I can get rid of the Oh my landline. god, just now you recorded this. So How about yourself? Um Rodney Dangerfield said, uh, you got it, kid. Ah. And I was like, I you know, okay, so when I opened for Don Rickles, which was yes. like a true honor and it, it was it was a bizarre setting because you know like at the fe the festivals at the gala the gala at montreal this is montreal where yeah Rickles. they're not fun shows to do but you know what i mean like there's, there's a lot of pressure there's a lot of pressure there's thousands of people in there and they're not it, it's not an intimate thing right. you know and everybody's there to see don rickles so we all did like you know it's not it was, like that thing in naples where you're having intimacy with the audience right, right, right. and you love it i no, mean that's right. it was beautiful. me and um Oh my, Alonzo and Lonzo Adam Bowden. Hills, who I adore. Yes, adore from adore, Australia. Adore, from Australia, um, and we and when anyway. So Rickles uh, was hosting this show. No, we were we were his warm ups. Ah, there were three of us, and then Rickles did like an hour. Mm. You know, just beyond brilliant. And you know, he was he's seated now because he's sort of injured. He had like his, yeah. his medical issue with his leg, and he's. I mean, he's just he is he's the pure example of if you're going to be, you have to be funnier than you are mean. You know, it just yeah. it it falls flat if you're meaner than you're funny. It just you yeah, just seem it like a mean work. girl. It's not or compelling. Mean it's, it's not compelling. It's not, you and know, it's cringy. A, and, but a, if it's so funny, it's like Robert Schimmel was so dirty, but so much funnier than he could ever have been dirty. And he was and smart. filthy, filthy but smart. Oh my gosh, yeah. And 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 again, there was a vulnerability. Like a lot of comics, I see not all of them, but there's a big amount of comics who do comedy in the everybody sucks but me vein. Yeah. And you know, it's popular. There's a lot of popular comedians, very popular comedians, who do that kind of comedy. But it's not compelling. It's there's no vulnerability and there's no strength in it. It's like I don't give a shit about you. Is how I feel about that kind of stuff. Right. I'll tell you, with Rickles, my father is the biggest Rickles fan in the on the planet, and uh, I had met Rickles at the show at Letterman when I worked at Letterman, mm -hmm. and I went up to him and uh, he was couldn't have been nicer. We ended up spending forty five minutes talking. Uh, I had just got the booking job. I had just gone to Hong Kong for the first time, telling him all these stories because I wanted to tell, find out about him. He wanted to find out about me. So he goes on the show and he's talking to Dave and he couldn't think of a name and I knew it, Tommy Lee Jones. I went, Tommy Lee Jones. And he went, hey, you hockey puck. And then Letterman said something. Oh, don't make fun of the kid. He helped you out. 
And then Rickles said the nicest things in the world about me then. And my father got to see that show. And that was the, my father said in his life, that was the greatest moment in his life that his hero uh, said nice things about his son. That's so sweet. But Rickles still is sweet to me and oh, still is sweet. great. But this was my favorite, my favorite moment. So. I'm telling you I, my stories on no, the podcast. No, no, no. I wanted to walk. Well, they're interesting. I, I want my, my friend Terry, who you've met yes. many times, my friend Terry, who was my daughter, my daughter's godmother, who has since, you know, passed away. So it was right. the summer before she died. And she was really like, we, they they came with me to see Rickles. And, and she really, really wanted to meet him. And, you know, I felt very conscious of the fact that he's, you know, not, it's not easy to maneuver. I didn't want to like overwhelm him. But I was right. like, can, and, and so as I came in, he, I knew you could see that he saw me, and he goes, "The girl was weak." Hi, and I was like, <laughs> "Really?" I was like, "You slammed me, yeah. Rickles." <laughs> it was so exciting in front of you, in front of Terry. Yeah, in front of oh, just completely. Oh, God, yeah, he's divine. well. Speaking of Letterman, you know, I told you the story that I was when I first got the booking job. I was showing a bunch of different comics. I'd put on some, you know, Smothers Brothers and. You know, people like my heroes and Carlin and all this kind of stuff and Roseanne and all this stuff like that. And then um, I want to show Nick DiPaolo because I think Nick is one of the funniest comedians in the world. And people know that, but not Mm -hmm. enough people know how hilarious he is. And he laughed his ass off Letterman watching the tape. And when the tape was over, we started talking, and then you were at the, you were like, it was a videotape of him over one of yours. And he looked and he stopped. He said, I love that girl. (laughs) <laughs> and I don't think he said girl. He said, I love that comedian. And uh, and it was so great. It was such a great moment because he really literally stopped talking about what we were there to talk about. And uh, it was so good. And then you got to do Letterman. And when was the first time you it ever did it? It makes me so happy. Yes. Um, the first time I got to do Letterman was... It wasn't my booking. I think no, you the, did it the first before. time. The first time I did it was 1998, maybe? I started it working there in 97 as, as the warm-up, and I became the booker in 2000. No, but you were there as the warm-up when yes. I did it. Yeah. You absolutely were. But I um, it was 98 or 99, and um, Kevin Bacon was the other guest. Yes. And uh, Kevin O'Quan did my makeup, like world-famous makeup was artist. Was Zoe Friedman the booker? And that, Zoe. Yes. Zoe was the booker. Yeah. Yes. Gosh, thank you for reminding me. And, um, well, everybody, you know, I mean, he's like, He's our Johnny Carson. I mean, yes. you you have this desire to be on Letterman and to somehow please his sense of humor. It's like being anointed, and then you're like, "I did Letterman," you know. Yeah. Um, and and you done, know, I did it three times. I did right. it twice with you. But the best Letterman experience I had was, um, I, as you know, well, I was trying. I was explaining this to somebody. How I mean, we must have gone to ten clubs. On one of those sets, getting them right. ready, just knocking it down to four and a half minutes. Yeah, knocking it down to four and a half minutes, and all, and actually doing the same set over and over again. But I mean, it's, it is it's sort of like many months of a process, right? Yes. You know, you get booked, and then you, you know your date, but then you've got a lot of time in between. So this one particular set, well, you and I had worked a ton on, and it was supposed to be you. It was supposed to be um, Jeff Goldblum and myself. Those right. were the two guests, and at the last minute, Terrell Owens right. got booked because he was having a big season at the time. And um, I, of course, went into his, because uh, my then boyfriend was totally into football and mm-hmm. fantasy football. And I went in and in, and introduced myself to T.O. And I was like, 
First of all, you were one of my boyfriend's fantasy guys. And uh, my then boyfriend was like, if you ever say that to any man ever again, I'm going to kill you. And he goes, he might not even know what fantasy football is. And I'm like, oh, okay. I'm sure he did. And then he said to me, and he goes, you're that, and T.O. said, oh, you're the, you're that crazy witch from television. Because ah. he watched Sabrina. And I was like, yes, I am. And then well, when he went downstairs, he, um, he you know, he went in the elevator and I said, break a leg. Nah. And um, he said, great. What does that mean? And I said, well, that's what actors say to each other in a theater for good luck. So break a leg. And then he went down and he went on and on and on. And you and came on, up and you said, I'm so sorry, but you got cut. I know. That was you'll, the hardest you'll be part. Back. Of my, one of the hardest part of my job. And, and I you was on the bus, so pissed off i was just because you know you have like fifteen hundred dollars worth of hair and makeup done and some like outfit and you've got a club that you're like plugging yes. that day and i was so pissed off and then um and you meant break a leg yeah well and then to came up in the elevator and uh, he goes so did i break a leg and i'm like yeah you were great great <laughs> the next day he broke his leg ah wow Next day. And, and and hopefully your boyfriend at the time took him off the fantasy league <laughs> yeah. for doing that. Yeah, that happened my Remember? first time. And then, and then he played in the Super Bowl, and, and, everyone's, and he said, it'll never be healed. And T.O. said, God is my doctor. Yeah. I thought that was a good one. Yeah, and uh, I, I, I used the same doctor. <laughs> um, yeah, the first time I ever did the show, I was really excited about uh, doing the show. And, of course, you get all psyched up. You and buy a suit. And it's freezing in there, and they don't tell you that it's freezing. And nah. you're shaking on the inside. And, and then you, the one minute you hear... Oh, I know the one I. I'm sorry, but I remember because I said my joke, which was based on a true story and a comedian. I can't tell you who, but I'll mouth it to you later. Yeah. Um, if you got fixed up on a blind date with someone, don't you think with somewhere within the ten top ten descriptive adjectives, lazy eye would be mentioned? <laughs> and then, and then I said, you know, we eventually broke up because I found out he was seeing someone on the side. Right. And That's and then right. I heard Letterman go, ha. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like inside I was like I can stop now yeah. he made a sound yeah. he laughed when I would say something to him in the commercial break and then I'd come back from the commercial and say the thing and get a laugh I mean that was the biggest thrill of my life so wait I'm sorry what was your first time like there um, first time I got bumped uh, and I was you know but I worked and there so they yourself. knew no I was I didn't book myself oh, oh, I, was, okay. I got booked by Zoe oh you did yeah first time I ever did so how show. many years were you at Letterman 17 Total? years 17 years. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. How many comics did you put on? Um, I don't know. At the beginning, when I first got the thing, they offered it to me, and I was like, I don't know, because, you know, I had run this comedy club, and it was such a pain in the ass yeah, yeah, running yeah. a comic club. Now I'm going to book these things, and I'm a comic, and I have all these comics who want to get on the show, and then my life is going to change. He right. said, what do you care? Just do it. So I, I do it, and I said, I want a comic every week. And he said, no, we, you know, you get one a month and three months. And I was like, okay. So I booked Jeff Stilson first. Because he had worked at the show and Dave loved him, and I thought, and he, we were working on a set. He was working on a set anyway, and him and I were talking about it. Mm -hmm. So I said, "Hey, let's." I put you on, and he crushed. And then Letterman said, "You have a comic every week." And so the first year, I had like thirty-seven comics on the show. It was overwhelming because I had never booked. How many new comics did Jay Leno break while he was on the Tonight Show? I don't know. I don't, I don't think know. there's one. You know, my last year, <laughs> I, I broke seven comics on the show. Yeah, I don't you know, think one. I would, but we it got back down to like twelve or fifteen. As yeah. the years went on, which I it never made sense to me because comics got incredible ratings on the show. Yeah, I just don't understand that part of it. But I wasn't in that part of it. Plus, I was always a comedian first as a booker second to me. So I'm always fighting for comedians, and I got you know yelled at for fighting for comedians instead of fighting for the show, right. which happened. But that's okay. My dad was in the audience then, though. That was such yeah. a bummer. He was in the audience when it got when I got um, bumped. 
Yeah, there, there's been a lot of comedians whose parents flew in from I like know. Maine or something, and they didn't get to Arizona see their way kid. farther. My yeah. father, can I tell you something funny about him? He wanted to be an actor, and he ended up being a doctor. Mm. And I would put him in every show and every pilot that I did. And um, he was. Uh, <laughs> I one time I got him a part on CSI when it first started. Uh-huh. And he he had done some extra parts and everything, and he said so. He called me. I paid eight hundred dollars to get him a a non speaking part on CSI because you know he's not <laughs> oh, the yeah. union, right? It, right. It was it was the first season. <laughs> How did you pay eight hundred dollars? One of these at auctions? a charity event, right. yeah. Okay. And um, so I told my dad, and I got this call. Honey, um, listen, <laughs> I'm gonna have to pass on this. I'm like what? And he goes, yeah. I spoke to the people, and um. They want me to be dead. They want me to be a dead person in a morgue, and um, I'm not doing that. I'm like, the whole show is about dead people, Dad, and you can't speak. Like, you you can't. Yeah, it's the perfect. Best thing, when he was on a pilot that I did, that this was, it was called Plan B, and it was set, and it was in this Weight Watchers meeting, and then I'm telling this story, and Kim Whitley, yes. who's one of my best friends, and Ava's other godmother, is like in the scene, and a great actress, and I say, uh, the line is, and my dad's in the scene. And I say, and then he sent me and then he sent me a bunch of balloons. And Kim's line is balloons. What the hell does that mean, right? So I say, and then he sent me a bunch of balloons. And you hear my father say, balloons. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> and I, and the director's like, cut. What happened? And I go, nothing, nothing. So I go over to my father and I go, Dad, you can't talk. You're yeah. you're an extra. And he goes, and you're dead. Sorry, I'm sorry, honey. You know, and and uh, and so then. Okay. And then he sent me a bunch of balloons. And you see my dad go, balloons! <laughs> and then cut. And I'm like, Dad, he goes, I said one word. I didn't even say the whole line. I'm like, it's her line. You can't say it. So then it's like, take three. And then the director goes, something is something, something happened. Did people move places? And my father has moved to the other side now. You know, <laughs> he's an extra. And I go, Daddy, what's happening? He goes, she smelled terrible. And she was hitting on me. So I moved. Uh. I'm like, go <laughs> Best eight hundred dollars you ever spent. Yeah, and then I'm like, uh, and then he bu- sent me a bunch of balloons, and you see my father mouthing the words balloons. What the hell? Is oh that? my god! I know. All right. <laughs> he was funny. I, you know, we could talk for hours, <laughs> yes, and can. I know you have Ava. I do. That you have to. You take got care one of. minute. Yeah. All right. Oh, well, you know, of course, I want to talk about you taking over Rosie O'Donnell's show. Oh she my gosh, that's a whole. You. That's a whole what? She, she did That's a whole. Oh my gosh, we. We've I read like that and then nineteen so, whatever something. You yeah. know what? I I I paid her back because um, I was at an audition about a month ago, and I was looking at this, and I was like, you know what? This is Rosie's part. This is not a part for me. This is a part right. for Rosie. And I called her, and I said, listen, call your agent. And she goes, and she had not heard of this project or the role. And I'm like, here's the name of the role. Here's the name of the character. You know, this is this is right. for something for you. So um, I spoke to her last week uh, from the set. She booked it. So I said, okay, we're even. That's that worked yeah, out good. That's even. All right, you only have a few minutes. What's next? Uh, you know, we, we couldn't Thursday, even talk about on, Sabrina. On Thursday, I'm going to um, <laughs> the premiere of this sweet series of movies that I just started called Bruno and Boots, oh. where I play Eugenia Scrimmage, the headmistress Is of an all-girls school. No, or, it's oh great, because live had that action. Great I'm a real person. I'm a real person in it. For all these years. Yeah, and um, and then I'm going to do a movie in May called Sorted Lives. And what's that? Uh, Sorted called? Lives was a series that I did, and it was like Texas. Um, it's like Desperate Housewives in a Texas trailer park, and I play No Leader Nethercott, and she's like, they're all they're all just you know, 
My husband makes me sick. He has wood legs, so I can't have sex with him no more. I don't want to get a splinter. You, you started with <laughs> Brett Butler and you ended with Brett Butler. There you That's go. how that worked. My one side. And you still love your stand up like crazy. I do. I love you my can't, st- can't. You know what? I, it's how I process my life and connect with people. The two things I need to do for mental, you know, health. Yeah, and little Ava, she's your little comedian. Little Ava is the most delicious, yes. hilarious. I made a horrendous parenting choice. I decided the other day. She was in the bath and there were like rose petals because I was doing aromatherapy, but it was like, obviously like, it really looked like I put a bag of chicken feet in and um, she goes, mommy, I'm afraid one of these is going to go up my V. And then I was like, oh, <laughs> don't worry, that's not going to happen. And I go, window of opportunity because my father was an obstetrician gynecologist uh-huh. and a really big Star Wars fan, so he loved it if he called him OBGYNobi, <laughs> and um, which someone stole and put on a shirt. I was quite annoyed. Anyway, so I was like, I was seven, so I'm going to tell her. So I go, <laughs> Ava... That's that's not going to happen. In fact, the only time that anything ever really does go inside the V is when you're married. That's <laughs> yeah, right. fine. When you're married and um, the penis actually goes inside the V and it has like just like a flower and a bee, it fertilizes it. And as I'm saying it, I'm like, this is a terrible choice. I've made a horrible decision. And, and I'm like, back up I this. can't back out. And I go, and that is how babies are made. And then I go, do you want me to wash your hair? And she <laughs> literally looks at me like with the most horrified expression. She goes, no, I, I, I want to get out of the bath. Yeah, I want to go lay down. <laughs> yeah, so she gets to the bath. So 20 minutes later, she comes up to me. And she's got her hand on her hip. And she goes, Mommy, I was thinking about that horrible story you told me. <laughs> and I have a question. How would you ever get anyone like to agree to do that to you? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, that's a whole other conversation. I, I goes, have never gotten goes, anyone and to. Mommy, you were not married to daddy. So how did you ever convince him to do it? <laughs> oh, man. She's too smart. That's what you did. You made a smart person. Well, you're a smart person. I did. I'm a smart person. You're a smart person. We're, you know, we're all smart. One smart fellow, he felt smart. Remember? Okay, but I am literally going to be. Don't. Do you get yelled at by your children? I, I, yeah. You know, she yeah. will be yelling I, at me that, Mommy, you said you're going to be back at 530. It right. is now 6. So I love you, and you'll be brilliant at anything you do, especially a podcast. Thank you, darling. Thanks for being the first uh, guest ever. This will be out of things, so you'll be like the fourth, maybe. But uh, but thanks for coming by. Love you so much, (laughs) and uh, and what? And I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.